District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about the organization, visit www.cfact.org. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Gabriella Hoffman. In today's episode, I'm going to comb through four headlines and offer a little bit of analysis on some interesting news stories across conservation, energy, and firearms. And I'm going to read for you a few reviews that we received on Apple Podcasts. Here's what I have in store for you all today. First, I think we all have seen the news coverage. We all have friends in Texas and the other areas affected by the Arctic blast. But a historic Arctic blast has put the state of Texas primarily in a standstill with very chilly temperatures, historic amounts of snow, and blackouts in winter kind of similar to blackouts that have befallen California in recent years. I'm going to read for you a little bit of a synopsis of the situation from Reuters. Ice storms knocked out nearly half of the wind power generating capacity of Texas on Sunday as a rare deep freeze across the state locked up turbine powers while giving electricity demand to record levels, the state's grid operator reported. The article went on to say that Of the 25,000-plus megawatts of wind power capacity normally available for Texas, some 12,000 megawatts was out of service as of Sunday. So that's almost half of the electric grid. And also wind generation accounts as the second largest source of energy in Texas, 23% of the state power supplies last year behind natural gas, which represented 45% according to ERCOT. You can see the images. They're pretty harrowing of the wind turbines frozen. And a lot of people as a result of this have have questioned whether or not this push to transitioning to clean energy, especially wind power, was sustainable for weather patterns like this. So a lot of people are calling into question Texas's foray into this. Some are questioning whether or not their switch to this was founded in reason. If this is truly sustainable, could further blackouts like this happen? A lot of people are grappling with the fallout from the Arctic storm, and they want to see ERCOT and others in the state held accountable for not preparing for this, for falling short on this. And a lot of people have also called into question the infrastructure in place. Another interesting thing relating to Virginia, we're going to keep on the energy bent here for a bit, is Delegate Nick Freitas, who previously ran for Congress and narrowly lost, he introduced a bill to revoke and undo the Virginia Clean Economy Act. And we've talked a little bit about this and with a lot of people talking about electric utilities, whether they're truly sustainable, if Virginia, let's say, can withstand and adapt and have its electric grid accommodate solar and wind right now i can tell you guys we are not anywhere near capable of sustaining wind and solar because right now we largely are powered our electric grid is powered by natural gas by 50 some odd percent followed by nuclear which is about 30 percent of our electricity generation and then coal at about 10 percent, and then biomass is at about seven percent so right now solar and wind are very minimal on our electric grid and The Virginia Clean Economy Act is kind of like the Green New Deal, but on a Virginia scale. Freitas's bill, which is HB 2265, Electric Utilities Development of Renewable Energy Facilities, from any electricity generating unit in the Commonwealth and authorizing the board to reestablish an auction program for energy allowances. 
It would also prohibit the State Corporation Commission from approving any new utility-owned generation facilities that emit carbon dioxide as a byproduct of energy generation in certain circumstances. Three, declaring that statutory allowances for energy derived from sunlight, offshore, onshore wind, offshore wind, and storage facilities are in the public interest. And relating to the development of solar and wind generation and energy storage capacity, development of offshore wind capacity, and generation of electricity from renewable and zero carbon sources. The bill provides that planning and development activities for new nuclear generation facilities are in the public interest. And there's just this big push for renewable energy, clean energy sources, yet absent from the discussion in the Virginia Clean Economy Act and any mention is nuclear energy. They... The General Assembly voted last year in a resolution format that nuclear is considered renewable, but nuclear is nowhere to be found in the Virginia Clean Economy Act from my last examination into the bill. Um, Not only that, and, and people view nuclear energy as like the true, purest, cleanest energy source of the future, but also the price tag associated with the Virginia Clean Economy Act has been subject to criticism. And... When this bill was first being pushed, they promised really wonderful things. It sounds idyllic. It sounds really great on the surface. So they said that it'll spur economic growth, create up to 13,000 jobs per year. It'll produce $69.7 billion in net benefits for Virginia. Uh, they also said that it'll protect consumers. It'll generate up to $3,500 in savings for an average Virginia household over 30 years. But when you do the math, including the increases that actually relates to a loss in savings of almost $20,000, 19000 or so. And it prevents spikes in electricity bills. Like I said, when you calculate the impact from the VCEA, that's the opposite. And they also claim that they're going to eliminate all harmful carbon emissions from Virginia utilities by 2050. However, a report from Melanie Lenore, who's a great reporter for the Richmond Times-Dispatch, actually reported that our utility company, Dominion Energy, would not be able to meet those goals by 2045. In her reporting from May of last year, it said retiring all carbon-producing power plants in Virginia by 2045 would require Dominion Energy to import power from, quote, carbon-intensive facilities, end quote, outside the state. Mel Lenore's reporting also found that there will be an increase in energy bills by as much as 3% a year until 2030, in large part due to infrastructure investments to build solar, offshore wind, and battery capacity. And she says in her article, for the average residential customer using 1,000 kilowatt hours per month, that could mean an increase of $45.92 to their monthly bills from the current $116.18 per month to $168.58 per month. Even Dominion, our utility company, said that they wouldn't be able to meet the standards. Obviously, the costs associated with it cancel out their amiable goals to produce and render clean energy. Delegate Freitas' bill will be interesting. Unfortunately, I don't really see it gaining traction right now in its current form because Democrats control both chambers of the state legislature. They passed this by a party line vote and one Republican state senator also voted in line to pass the VECEA. So it's a good faith effort. I'm not sure it's going to pass, but I think you're going to see momentum build for repealing this. And especially this may trickle down to our statewide elections happening this fall. Virginia has elections every fall. So this will be interesting to watch. And Delegate Freitas is pretty smart, understands policy. So anytime he puts out something, it beckons to be listened. Now hopping over to 
firearms and gun control. Over the weekend, President Biden issued a statement commemorating the three years since the tragic Parkland shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. You guys can read this statement for yourself. His statement at the end concluded that this administration will not wait for the next mass shooting to heed that call to prevent future mass shootings. We will take action to end our epidemic of gun violence and make our schools and communities safer. Today, I'm calling on Congress to enact common sense gun law reforms, including requiring background checks on all gun sales, banning assault weapons and high capacity magazines, and eliminating immunity for gun manufacturers who knowingly put weapons of wars on our street. We owe it to all those we've lost and to all those left behind to grieve to make a change. The time to act is now. This is just a a virtue signaling on the part of the president. And like I said, it it could open up a lot of doors to litigation. And this takes away from holding people who commit gun, violent gun crimes accountable. So not surprised to see that. Of course, he wants to ban so-called assault weapons. What is an assault weapon in his view? I think in, in... his wording on his campaign website showed that it would also include AR-15 type platforms and actually commonly used and owned firearms that are operated by the bulk of American people. In terms of universal background checks, most, if not nearly every single firearm purchase is subjected to a background check, even in private sales. And studies show, and I've referenced this a lot, a DOJ study found that much of the crime that is committed by criminals involving guns does not involve the so-called gun show loophole or private sales. It's very minimal. We know that President Biden had advocated for this. Media did not cover this, of course, but he was open about where he wants to go with respect to gun control. Does this match public opinion? No, because people continue to purchase guns and ammunition at historic levels. There's still record level shortages of guns, ammunition, A lot of people who are not your traditional gun buyer are purchasing guns in droves. So people are starting to awaken to the fact that gun control doesn't work, as we see with their purchasing habits. Also, the political calculus, I don't know if he will be able to get Congress to do this because it is so divided on partisan grounds. There's only a 50-50 vote in the Senate, plus the VP. She would be the 51st deciding vote. Do we see Democrats from conservative states like Senator Sinema, Senator Manchin, possibly Senator John Tester, voting for any gun control measure, like the three aforementioned policies that President Biden wants to do. That remains to be seen. Will we see defectors in the House Democrat side? Will this pass committee? Given the fact that Democrats only narrowly control the House of Representatives, it remains to be seen. It'll be interesting to see if this will be done by executive action or through the purse of Congress, but it's not going to be popular. And I think You're going to see a lot of resistance to this in the form of people contacting their lawmakers, urging them to oppose this, and you're going to see a a lot of vocal opposition to this. I have no doubt people writing articles about this, making videos explaining the consequences with these policies and the fact that they don't reflect trends showing that gun ownership is actually increasing, that people want to protect themselves, and that these laws would create further obstacles and do nothing really to curb crime. It would actually empower a lot of criminals. It wouldn't really put a check on them. It would criminalize law-abiding gun owners and prevent them from legally purchasing firearms. Should you be worried about it? Absolutely. So that's where you can contact your lawmakers, have call to actions, and get your friends aware Put out the legislation, educate your peers about it, and urge your representatives to vote no on any of these proposals should they come out in bill form. And there's a lot of gun control bills out there right now, so we have to stay vigilant. A final story I want to talk about 
relates to Wisconsin's DNR allowing a upcoming wolf hunt. Judge orders Wisconsin DNR to hold immediate wolf hunt. The Wisconsin judge has ordered the State Department of Natural Resources to schedule a wolf hunt season this month rather than waiting until fall. And they go and hearken back to the fact that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service removed gray wolves from the endangered species list on January 4th, returning management authority to the lower 48 states and tribes. And according to the article, a 2012 state law requires DNR to allow wolf trapping and hunting from November through February if wolves are not listed as endangered. And the DNR's state policy board voted 4-3 to three last month against opening the season in February amid concerns that the department had not consulted na- tribal nations as required by treaties and did not have time to set quotas. And it was the group Hunter Nation that sued successfully in court and got them to proceed with the hunt. Also from Madison.com, the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources will allow hunters to kill 200 wolves in the last week of February, even as the state appeals a judge's order requiring a winter hunting season. They voted unanimously Monday to authorize a February hunting and trapping season for the wolf, which was removed last month from the Federal Endangered Species Act. And they will, the DNR will issue up to 4,000 permits based on a recommended quota of 200 wolves. It'll be interesting to see if that quota will be fulfilled, if there will be any obstacles in the courts relating to this or stopping this. Obviously, there's a lot of opposition from radical environmental is- interests who believe wolves are not successfully recovered and they use different tactics to obfuscate and lie about the successful recovery of gray wolves. And it's a very controversial hunt. I understand it. I personally would never partake in management efforts of wolves, but I understand the need to do it because of predation, attack on ungulate species, kind of the depreciation of livestock for farmers. There are a lot of different moving parts to this and problems associated with not having a management system in place. Those are some of the headlines I wanted to discuss. And if you have any further questions on the four aforementioned stories, head over to the show notes to learn more or reach out to me if you have individual questions. I also want to read two reviews that we received from Apple Podcasts for you all. Here they are. From Latin Speed, informative and insightful. Very impressed by the guests this podcast gets always seems to discuss the relevant topics and big players in conservation and environmental issues great discussion and my wonderful friend demetrius minor left a very nice review as well titled wonderful and insightful district of conservation is an educational and well-researched podcast that explores all the intricate details of wildlife and conservation the host does a splendid job in not only researching the topics discussed but also ensuring that there are seasoned and balanced viewpoints discussing the policy issues if you're looking for a If you're looking for informative and rational conversations on issues related to conservation, I'd highly encourage you to listen and subscribe to the podcast. Thanks to both of those reviews for the nice words. We appreciate it. We always strive to improve, make tweaks and the like, and keep those reviews coming. Go leave those five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts if you haven't already. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat nor a guest announcement. Subscribe on your preferred platform. Shoot us some recommendations on people we should bring on and topics we should discuss. This week, I'm going to be a little light on content and guests because I am conducting some very cool interviews later this week with some fabulous guests. Actually, two women. I love bringing fellow women on and you should be on the lookout for that i'm also going to try to bring on some non-political guests too just to talk about their efforts so you can expect more of that as well we'll return to regular programmatic schedule on monday so stay tuned for that thanks for listening